wonderful this morning. Well, good morning, church. My name is Greg Baker. I have the privilege of serving here at Grace Bible Church as one of our deacons, as Jared said. I also get to lead our fifth and sixth grade ministry, um, and I get to preach every once in a while. Um, And I'm sure that you remember or you've heard that as a church we're walking through the book of Ecclesiastes together. Um, And we've had a lot to unpack so far, especially about these ideas of futility or of vanity. And Solomon is going to continue to press on us and press on those ideas this morning in chapter 4. So if you would please turn in your Bibles there and I'll start reading for us in verse 1. Again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. So I commended the dead who have already died more than the living who are still alive. But better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed, who has not seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. I saw that all labor and skillful work is due to one person's jealousy of another. This too is futile, is vanity, and a pursuit of the wind. The fool folds his arm and consumes his flesh. Better one hand with rest than two handfuls, an effort and a pursuit of the wind. Again, I saw futility under the sun. There is a person without a companion, without even a son or brother, and though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asked, and depriving myself of good things? This too is futile and a miserable task. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who is without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken." Better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer pays attention to warnings. For he came from prison to be king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who move about under the sun follow a second youth who succeeds him. There is no limit to all the people who were before them, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. Dear Heavenly Father, you are good. You are mighty and holy. You are sovereign, generous, compassionate. And we are not those things. We have hearts bent towards jealousy, selfishness, despair. But we know that your Holy Spirit changes hearts. So we ask that you would be here this morning and that you would use the words of your servant Solomon to point us toward you. We ask that you would give us a better understanding of who you are through this passage and how to live in accordance with your will. I pray that your words would shine through during this time, that your Holy Spirit would be active in softening and convicting the hearts in this room. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name I pray. 
Amen. So if you were here a few weeks ago when Chad taught out of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, then you'll remember the, the kind of big picture of that, me- or that passage was the mystery of time. Chad talked about how we live with this sort of juxtaposition where we know full well that we cannot fully understand eternity, this mystery of time, but yet we're all drawn to it. We're all curious about it. And he worked through the idea that that should draw us to the Lord, that should draw us to the person and work of Jesus who stepped out of eternity and into our world. If you were like me, chapter 3 kind of felt like a breath of fresh air after chapter 1 and 2, which were a little darker and a little more doom and gloom. Um, But just to make sure you're not too comfortable, Solomon goes right back into verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. Read them with me again. I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. And his conclusion, So I commended the dead who have already died more than the living who are still alive. But better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed, who has not seen the evil activity that is under the sun. That is far from a bright and cheerful beginning to our passage. I think you would agree these are the thoughts and the reflections of a man in some sort of despair who has spent his days gathering all the wisdom and power that anyone on earth could imagine. He's the richest, most wealthy man in the history of evil and he still can't prevent the evil around him. Solomon is coming up against the fact that oppression and tyranny are constants in the world that cannot be stopped by human will or actions. And his conclusion is, maybe it's just not worth it. There's always going to be these terrible things. If not even I can stop it, then maybe it's better to not experience it at all. And throughout the history of thought and philosophy, this is a common line of logic that takes us to a place of darkness and almost a fatalistic place. But there have also been those that reach kind of this same conclusion about life that come at it from a very different perspective. And we have to look no further than Paul. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 20 says, My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is better for me. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. We see here this stark contrast in attitudes even though both of these men are presented with somewhat similar situations. Both Solomon and Paul knew the Lord. They loved Him. They served His people. They're both incredibly wise and definitely knew what it was like to see and experience great suffering. Yet Paul speaks with such hope and optimism, and Solomon seems so disheartened. And I draw your attention to that contrast, not because I don't think Solomon... Uh, misunderstood 
God's sovereignty over the evil in the world. I think he most certainly did. But he is letting us see into his struggle. He is letting us see into this despair, this dark place as he fights through it. And I want us to stop and think about how that struggle is different from the example that we have here in Paul. And that difference is driven by having a heavenly perspective versus a worldly perspective. It is driven by looking at our lives and our circumstances and the world around us with a view under heaven as opposed to a view under the sun. And that reorientation, that reframing of attitudes is the same thing that Solomon is going to call us to over and over in this chapter and in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. It's the reorientation that we need to give the glory to God through difficulty. Luckily for you and for me, you don't have to listen to me do the whole chapter or the whole book. You only have to listen to me do this whole chapter. Um, but we do have to get through the whole chapter, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going. Read with me in verse 4 where it says, I saw that all labor and all skillful work is due to one person's jealousy of another. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. Can we just stop and think for a second about how true that is and how many ways that is true? And don't just think about your career work. Think about all the work that you do to impress other people. Maybe when you host them in your home. Maybe when you go into other people's home. I think we would all have to say that we work on our self-image a lot, especially in America. And I think that we do that out of jealousy of others. And frankly, to make other people jealous of us. And to prove that point to you, I would present exhibit Instagram. I mean, we work ourselves into a tizzy to get the perfect picture, write the perfect caption. I read that 67% of travel enthusiasts look at Instagram to see where they should go on their next vacation. And something like 40% of young professionals say that Instagram ability, which is a word, was the most important factor in choosing their most recent vacation. We choose what we want to do so that we can broadcast a vision of what we want people to see. And then we all go on Instagram to look at everything everyone else is doing so that we can be jealous of them. And maybe what's worse is the world is telling us that's a good thing. More than 75% of Americans openly admit that they're envious of their neighbors and coworkers. That only means 25% are lying about it. It's gone so far. It's so ingrained in us that people are starting to just think, embrace it, harness it, use it as a tool. You are one Google search away from article after article telling you to use your envy, use your covetousness, use it as motivation to work a little harder, to stay a little longer at the gym, to eat that salad and not that cheesecake. To do whatever it takes for you to feel important. And frankly, to do whatever it takes to feel like you're better than everybody else. But you know, there's a flip side to that coin. Others look at life and they see the way that we're entangled in this ridiculous, self-inflicted, somewhat 
arbitrary competition with one another, and they just give up. They, do, they just become lazy. They just don't work hard to love their children, to provide for their families, to be good stewards of the gifts that God have given them. I mean, look, it's right here in verse 5. It says that the fool folds his arm and con- arms and consumes his own flesh. Solomon uses that same phrase to, ho- to fold his arms in the book of Proverbs several times, and it's always calling people away from laziness, warning about laziness, and he's doing the same thing here. Church, we can miss this on both sides. We can spend our lives working our fingers down to the bone, only to look up and realize that we've been chasing the wind. Or we can give up. We cannot work hard and destroy ourselves. Luckily for us, we don't have to go very far for the heavenly perspective. He gives it to us in verse 6. He says, Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and a pursuit of the wind. Better one handful with rest. Better to live and find contentment in God's provision. Again, we can go to Philippians, where Paul says in chapter 4 that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. That is not about scoring touchdowns. That is about commitment. Look at the, look at the verses before. It says, I know both how to do or how to make do with a little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret to being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The strength of Christ is the key to contentment. This is the heavenly perspective that we need. These are the promises we have to remind ourselves of, church. When covetousness and envy and jealousy creep into our lives. Tell yourself that God is in control of your life. God is in control of your belongings. God is in control of what other people think of you. And he loves you more than you can ever imagine. When Jesus was here and speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about Solomon, right? And he says that even in all his glory, even with all that stuff he lists off in chapter 1, he was still never clothed like the flowers of the field. The flowers that are in the field one day and thrown into the furnace the next. How much more does he love you? You who he knit in your mother's room. You who he created in his image. Church, that love, that security, that abolishes envy. It eliminates it. It eradicates it. Verse 7. Again, I saw futility under the sun. There is a person without a companion, without even a brother or a son. And though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asks, and depriving myself of good things? This too is futile and a miserable task. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. 
but pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Now, we see here Solomon makes a bit of a transition. He's still working on us, still thinking through this idea of success and working towards a goal. But instead of critiquing our motivations, he is now critiquing the way, the means by which we pursue those goals. And I think all of us know someone who fits the description here. I think we all know someone at work that, that just doesn't have other responsibilities, that doesn't look out for other people, that doesn't care about loyalty to others. You know the person that always shows up to that first meeting in the morning They've already had coffee. They're awake because they don't have any kids in their house. You know, the, and then, you know, that person comes to you and they start talking about, oh man, I was up late. Oh man, I had this go on. And you're just thinking, that is a run of the mill day at my house. And at, at times, I bet you're kind of jealous of that person. If you're like me, you're tempted to think maybe that's the way to go. Maybe companionship and loyalty to others are holding me back. Maybe I could do more if I didn't have those things. Or maybe you're the person that is avoiding companionship. Maybe you're the person who is constantly working to justify those decisions, who's having to tell yourself over and over, oh, I know God's calling me to have a family, but, but I'm just too busy at work right now. I need to get things straightened out first. Maybe you say, I, I know I should invest in other people. I know I should be here at church more, but, but work's just too important right now. Solomon completely shuts those attitudes down in verses 9 through 12. Look at it point by point with me. Many are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. This may come to a shock as some of the, to some of the introverts in the room, but most people work harder and better and more efficiently when you know they're like around other people. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. Hard times are coming. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but they're coming. The storm is coming and good luck getting up all by yourself. If two lie down, they can keep warm. In the Christian life, we have got to be ready for the long haul. We have got to be ready for the cold nights. And the energy that it takes to get through that feeds off of the energy of the people around you. It is multiplied by the other Christians in your life. If someone overpowers one man, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Church, we are weak, and we are vulnerable to all sorts of temptations when we are alone. Thankfully, in his wonderful mercy, God has created us and saved us into community. And by the way, even if somehow you got where you wanted to go, even if somehow you had all that success, even if it seeming or seemed to pay off to avoid companionship to not be loyal to only look out for number one solomon says you'd still look back at the end of your life and wonder what it was all for 
you'd still ask, why did I do it? Why did I skip out on all those other things? Church, the world will tell you that you're better off on your own. A worldly perspective will tell you that throughout your life, you should just go after freedom. You should just be yourself. You should look out for number one. They'll tell you that loyalty and commitment are burdens that hold you back from reaching your potential. But church, we have got to stop looking at things in life, especially relationships, as a means to the end of our own success. We have got to start looking at things in life, start looking at relationships as what God meant them to be, as a provision of grace that we cannot live without. The bottom line is that God made people to be with and work with and love other people. We see that from the creation story all the way through the scriptures. And for you, congregation sitting here today, the primary vehicle for that community is here. It is the local church. Think about everything that we share together. Think about everything that we owe to each other. We sit under the same elders. We hear the same sermons. We talk through the same scriptures and life groups. We weep with each other when times are hard. We hold each other up when times are hard. We point out each other's sin. We hold each other accountable to grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we come and we sit in a room like this and we sing, we worship together, we take the Lord's Supper together, we celebrate baptism together. Hold on to those things. Lean into them. Embrace that God is blessing you with these things and find ways to pursue it further. Find ways to be more involved. Find people in this room that need you. Find people in this room that you need. I think we would be fools to not notice that this companionship is the only thing in this chapter that Solomon doesn't say is a pursuit of the wind. That he doesn't say is vanity. And it's because an investment in God's church, an investment in God's kingdom, never returns void. Well, I have good news and bad news. The good news is I would be happy to talk about that for a few more minutes and then call it quits. The bad news is that I promised Chad I would finish chapter 4. Um, so we do have to keep going. Uh, we do have to, to press on. So read with me in verse 13. Better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer pays attention to warnings. For he came from prison to be king, even though in his kingdom. I saw all the living who move around under the sun follow a second, a second youth who succeeds him. There is no limit to all the people who were before them, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. Now this kind of narrative is a little bit confusing, and I think Solomon does kind of do that on purpose. Um, but I do want to just walk through this. He, he's telling us the story of a kingdom that is being passed from one king to another. And this first king, the one in verse 13, who's described as a fool, was apparently once a prisoner in this kingdom. 
And as someone who rises from poverty and imprisonment to royalty, to be king. And over the years, he does become arrogant and foolish, refusing to take advice from anyone. And his successor, the poor but wise young man, then takes his throne and has what we can only assume is great success. We see in verse 15 that all the living followed this new ruler. But one verse later, this young, wise man is already forgotten. And I want to lay that out for us because I think it's important to see Solomon's point, which is that political power, which I think can serve as a proxy in our own lives for influence or power over others, is just as fleeting as wealth and wisdom or work and possessions. Right? We love to think about being remembered. We love to think about leaving a legacy. Well, Solomon says, even if you're a king, you'll still be forgotten. Not just that, even if you start out as a young, as a young person in prison with nothing and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get all the way to, a be, to be all the way to being a king, then you'll still be forgotten. You'll still just be another one in a long line that goes before you and a long line that is yet to come. Now, Greg, you may be thinking to yourself, or now, church, you may be thinking to yourself, Greg, you just yelled at us for 10 minutes about how we're supposed to be in relationship with others. You just went through that whole list of things that we are supposed to, uh, that we owe each other as members. That we're supposed to call each other to accountability, that we are supposed to preach the word to one another. I'm up here preaching to you right now, and if those things aren't exercising some sort of influence, I don't know what is. And to that I would say, first off, it was only eight minutes. But past that, I would say that you're right. And just like Solomon wouldn't tell us that wisdom is a bad thing in and of itself, just like he would tell us that wouldn't tell us that work is a bad thing in and of itself. He wouldn't say that about influence. He wouldn't say that about political power. He would say that it won't satisfy. He would say that working towards power and influence, a pursuit of power and influence, is often a road that leads to a place we don't want to be, a place where we are glorifying ourselves instead of the Lord. The sanctification, the joy, the glory of God the Father comes when we see influence or power as an opportunity to love and serve others. I'm sure we've all experienced this. When you have a younger brother or sister in the faith who looks up to you, is that something that you want to hold over them? Is that something that you want to use to your own advantage? Or do we see it as a call to a higher standard? Do we see it as a call to be a good fluence, to use it for teaching opportunities? I hope the answer is that we are using it for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. As I was studying this part of the passage, I couldn't help but think about this issue as it relates to our value and our identity. I couldn't help but think about how so many people find their importance, their value, their identity, and their ability to impact others, and their ability to make a difference. And Solomon would say, if that's where you find your value, if that is where you find your importance, then you are laying 
bricks in a kingdom that will not hold up to the next storm. You are laying bricks in a kingdom that will never satisfy. But I'm here to tell you this morning that there is another kingdom. A kingdom that you did not and cannot build. A kingdom where power is not with the oppressors. A kingdom where the power is with the comforter who dries the tears of the oppressed. A kingdom where envy, jealousness, covetousness are made ridiculous by the fact that our treasure lies in heaven. In that kingdom, power is not fleeting. In that kingdom, there will never be a new king. In that kingdom, we will, there will never be a successor because in that king, the self-existent almighty God sits on the throne for all eternity. And church, you have no right to that kingdom. Like I said, you cannot build that kingdom. You don't even deserve to look at that kingdom. Genesis tells us that the human race lived in that kingdom. And they spat on it. Because they thought they could do better. But God invites us back. God draws us back into that kingdom. And has made a way for us to be reconciled to him through his son, Jesus Christ, who lived the life we needed to live. He took our sin and our shame and our shortcomings and he nailed them to a cross. And he rose three days later, having conquered sin and death once and for all. And maybe you're here today and you are a part of that kingdom. Hallelujah. I would challenge you to look at your life and find ways where you are not looking at your life from the perspective of that kingdom. You're looking at your life from a worldly perspective. Stop. God has something better for you. You are a part of his kingdom. Trust in that. Sit in that. Live in that. And maybe you're sitting here wondering what it would be like to be part of that kingdom. And I would just say that your invitation is here and now. That God saves sinners like you and like me. And this room is filled with people who want nothing more to talk to you about that, to answer questions, to share how deep and how great these truths really are. I'm going to be in the back of the room on the left side. If you have any more questions, I would love to talk to any of you about that. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your kingdom. We thank you that your kingdom cannot be shaken, that your kingdom is eternal, that your kingdom is mighty, and that you have invited us into it, that you have drawn us to it. I pray now as we sing these songs as we continue to worship you, that we would do so with thankful hearts. With hearts that acknowledge just how far that kingdom is from us and how far it would be 
without the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ, but how we can be members of that kingdom, heirs in that kingdom. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.